Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. We can't just, I mean, we can't just sit back and intend things and expect them to appear. Can we do that? Well, um, <laughs> that's such, a, such an interesting realm of human inquiry because uh, sometimes what I found is you can. If I were to tell you, Xavier, you too could be that happy and trip your brain function. And all you need to do is spend four hours a day, day for 30 years meditating it's like that's unrealistic so i wanted something that would let people get to those states really really quickly i can tell you we've just had the world cup and a lot of those people a lot of people those teams were tapping they were meditating they were doing all kinds of performance hacks to improve their performance so that's the next phase is not just how do you not suffer but how do you take your baseline of health and happiness and well-being and get a lot happier. The astounding thing, Xavier, that people in coherence can do, they can literally change the fundamental forces of physics. And that's the power we have with the coherent mind. So what I argue for is that what you will create when you're attuned to non-local mind is infinitely grander and more brilliant and more aligned with the flow of life. What's up, folks? Xavier Katana here. You are listening to the Human Experience Podcast. This is our episode with Dr. Dawson Church. He is an award-winning author. He wrote a book called The Genie in Your Genes. He's been hailed by reviewers as a breakthrough scientist that is helping people understand the link between emotions and genetics. In this conversation, we talk about the power of intention and how your mind is crafting the reality in front of you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. It was a really good one. Here is our episode with Dr. Dawson Church. Thank you so much for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest for today is Mr. Dawson Church. Dawson, thank you so much for being here. Xavier, pleasure to be here. So Dawson, why don't you give the crowd an idea of who you are, please, and what you do? Sure, I'd love to do that. And what I am really inspired to do is see people get out of suffering that's preventable. And I think that in every life, there's suffering, suffering that's not preventable. There are things that happen to us out of the blue that we can't really change. But so much of our lives, we can change. And so in my work, in my nonprofit endeavors, in my writing, I try and help people find the things they can change. And that turns out to be an enormous amount. So I have a, a nonprofit called the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare. And we do research there into promising new evidence-based medical cures, as well as psychological shifts. I also have a big program called the Veteran Stress Project, where we offer those 
types of mental health uh, shifts to veterans who have PTSD. And then I have a training company called EFT Universe, which trains therapists, life coaches, and others in those breakthrough methods. And finally, I write books about them to encourage people to uh, really focus on what they can do to improve their own lives, their own health, their own happiness levels. And my newest book is called Mind to Matter. It's all about how our minds can shift external and internal reality inside and outside of our, of our bodies. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got Mind to Matter in my hand right now. And I mean, what was the primary focus of this book? Two things. The book is really in two parts. And I wanted to answer the question, what can we do with our minds? And so right now I have a cup of tea in my hand. And if I tell you I manifested that cup of tea, you'd say, well, how? And so if I told you I manifested that cup of tea by walking to the kitchen and turning on the kettle, putting in a tea bag, and pouring hot water over the tea bag, uh, you would not be too impressed by my manifestational powers. But if I told you I'd, uh, that if I, if, I, if I was on video right now and I held, held my hands out and magically I manifested a cup of, cup of steaming hot tea in my hands, you'd be like, whoa, okay, that really, that really works. Mm. So there are, there's, there's magical manifestation, there's ordinary manifestation, and what are things we can manifest? Like, you know, for example, uh, I have friends who uh, have manifested millions of dollars. Um, one fun example of, of, from my life today is I've always wanted to meet Tony Robbins. And uh, he's a famous guy. He's, uh, he's really an influential sure. guy. I've read his books, love his work. And today in my email inbox, I got an email invitation to, to share the stage with him at a big conference he's doing in Abu Dhabi in October. Oh, so nice. you know, just a, a thought became a thing. Just in this ma seemingly magical way, I didn't do anything to catalyze that. I had the thought and it became a thing. So what, what things like that can we do with our, with our minds? But uh, I can tell you, you know, Xavier, I, I would love to be 25 years old again. Is that going to happen? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> In next reincarnation, you can come back. Again. Manifest, manifest so what's that way. realistic? What can we really do? And the book Mind to Matter answers that question. Right. Yeah. So what is, what is the limit of Mind to Matter? I mean, what can we really manifest into our worlds? And why isn't the explanation as simple as you walking over to your coffee machine and doing all of those things versus manifesting it? with your mind? I believe we think we can manifest certain things. Everyone knows they can manifest the cup of tea. People, though, don't realize how much they can manifest with their minds alone. The book is broken into two parts, and the first part is all about manifestation in our bodies. I'll give you an example. I have a friend of mine who uh, last year in March she got a diagnosis of breast cancer. There was a large lump in her right breast. She got thermography scans, other, other scans. Eventually, they measured the lump at two inches across. This is a big, big lump, five centimeter, two inch lump in her right breast. They also found that all of the lymph nodes under her right armpit were full of cancerous cells, and there was increased blood supply to them, so clearly the cancer had spread, metastasized beyond the primary tumor to her lymph nodes, and then further scans found three spots of inflammation on her lung, her right lung. Mm -hmm. So it looked like the cancer was spreading throughout her body. This is a very serious diagnosis. And so she is a believer in energy. And in the book, I, I, I say, you know, by all means, use material medicine. That pill might be perfect. That drug, that surgery might be necessary. But 
don't just look to what you can do with matter. What can you do with energy? And she was a believer in energy. She also emailed me in some panic because she had a gene test and she knew I was an expert on epigenetics, how our, our genes are turned on and off from outside the, the, the cell. So she said, I've had this gene test and they, and they found eight defective genes, some of which predispose me to breast cancer. So she, she was thinking that she was genetically predisposed now. And I said to her, Beth, you have 24,000 genes that don't predispose you to breast cancer. Let's focus on those. So she went and spent a week doing intensive qigong. We got her some energy medicine treatments. We got her some energy psychology treatments. She went through a complete shift in the way she thought about her life. She eliminated all sources of stress. She turned off all of her alerts mm -hmm. on all of her devices. She resigned from some activities she was doing that were good, but, but stressful to her. She had a decent diet, but she then had a rigorously perfect diet after that. And so this was in March she got the diagnosis. By May, two months later, the, she, her new scan showed that all of her lymph nodes were clear. All of those cancer cells that had been in the lymph nodes before were gone, and the tumor had shrunk to about a half an inch in size and diameter. And then the surgeon said, well, we should operate anyway. There's still that tumor, and it's still that, you know, it's still there. But she got several different opinions from various doctors. One of them said, you know, I think that's not an active tumor. I think it's a dead tumor. And it's shrinking because your body is reabsorbing that tissue. Mm -hmm. And so she did not get surgery, did not ever get a biopsy. Uh, and then a couple months later, all of her scans were clear and the tumor was gone, and all of her markers in her blood work was totally cancer-free without ever having addressed the matter of cancer. All she focused on was the energy of her thoughts, her body, her, her lifestyle, and energy shifts matters. What I argue in the, in the book over and over and over again is focus on energy. What, how can energy shift your body? How can it shift your money? How can it shift your relationship? What's the quality of your relationship? I've been married for a long time, and I can tell you, if I have a lousy energy in my marriage mm -hmm. or toward my kids or toward people in my, on my team, that I may, I may never say a word materially that the energy transmits itself. If I have good energy, kind energy, compassionate energy, that energy also transmits itself. So we can do a lot, a huge amount to shift our external world by shifting our internal energy. And so the first half of the book is all about energy and about how it shifts the matter, the genes, the hormones, the enzymes in your body, and it's supported by about 400 scientific studies showing that energy, literally the energy you create by your thoughts, the energy your neural pathways in your brain create as they transmit signals from one part of the brain to the other, all of that is shifting energy material, that energy is shifting material substances like hormones, like neurotransmitters, like genes in your body. And this is not, not a belief, this is not a hypothesis, this is scientific fact, and it's backed up by tons of evidence. The next part of the book is about a different topic, which is all about how energy shifts the material world outside of your body, which is equally fascinating. But that's, that's, that's generally speaking, what the book is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that definition. How would you classify consciousness? Do you see consciousness as a sort of lens in which we are viewing the world and that, that lens is shifting based on where we put our energy? How is reality manifesting? Consciousness is the subject of immense debate and controversy in scientific circles. The materialist scientist, the materialist point of view, 
says that we've been evolving for 3.4 billion years. Eventually, evolution resulted in single-celled organisms, eventually in complex organisms. Eventually, those organisms grew even more complex with nervous systems. Eventually, nervous systems were organized by brains, and then brains threw up this complex thing called mind. And so the, the summary of the materialist point of view is that mind is an epiphenomenon of a complex brain. In other words, it depends on its existence, for its existence on a complex brain. And another famous scientist said, mind is what brain does. So that's the materialist point of view of consciousness, is that consciousness is in the, in the mind, and the mind is, is triggered by the existence of the activity of the brain. The other point of view that I uh, really advocate and talk about in the book is that consciousness is present in the universe. The universe itself is conscious, and that we know from 100 years of the double slit experiment. The double slit experiment shows that consciousness, ob the act of observation, literally collapses reality into from a swarm of possibilities into a single probability. And so as individuals, we're literally collapsing reality, material reality around us all the time by our observation, which comes from our beliefs, our worldviews, and our mental activity. So with our thoughts, we're literally creating the world around us. Mm -hmm. Now, if we do, we, we can be doing this on a local level unconsciously, and, and we are creating the world around us on that local level all the time, but far better to do it consciously and consciously create the reality that serves you and serves and serves universe. Now, that limited model of a local mind is mildly interesting and mildly impactful. What I'm really focused on in the book, both in the very first part, the introduction, and then finally in the last chapter, chapter seven, and the afterward, I talk about non-local mind. And non-local mind is that great universal consciousness. And you don't want to be creating from a limited local consciousness steeped in your conditioning, in your limitations, in the worldview and perspective of your upbringing and your tribe and your culture. Because then you're, you're creating small and you're creating the same old stuff you've always created. You're creating the same stuff your neighbors are creating. What you want to do is you want to use the tools. And I, in the book, I give people many, many tools that will accomplish this. Tools that will shift your perspective out of local mind and local reality and into non-local mind and into universal reality, and now you are conscious as that universal reality and aware of your local mind as a node, a local node, a local receiver, like the way, for example, the people listening to this, this, this broadcast right now, they're listening to it on a device, but the, the, this broadcast is not coming from the device. There's something far beyond the device creating the broadcast. Your device is simply able to translate that those invisible spectra of energy into material sound, which you then hear on the device. In the same way, your brain is able to be a transducer of universal consciousness into your local reality. And that's how you want to live, because then, then you're one with the universal consciousness. You aren't just dreaming up what you want for your money and your house and your spouse and your marriage and your kids and your old age and your retirement plan and your career. You're now focused on that same awareness that makes the seasons and the planets and the birds and the animals and the earth, all of these things are 
in the state of attunement with that universal consciousness. It's only us human beings with our little local minds that are capable of bringing ourselves out of that. So what I argue for is that what you will create when you're attuned to non-local mind is infinitely grander and more brilliant and more aligned with the flow of life. That's why it's synchronous, because now if you have the thought, I'd like to, I'd love to have, you know, share the stage with Tony Robbins. Mm. And suddenly, out of the blue, get an email saying, will you share, share the stage with Tony Robbins? And it, it's uncanny when you get into that synchronous state, how these things just happen. You become very careful and conscious of your thoughts and your, your level of attunement, because you know you are that creator. So uh, that's how it works on that, that grander scale outside of our human bodies. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but it's not like we can just sit back and let the energy do the work for us or let intention do <clears throat> the work for us. We, we have to actually take action, right? One of the things I show in brain scans, we've now done brain scans of hundreds of people. My friend Joe Dispenza at his workshops has done brain scans of close to 10,000 people. And looking at those brain scans, there is a huge difference between people who have coherent brain waves, coherent mind, mental function, and people who have incoherent brain waves. And it's kind of like in the book, in chapter two, I have graphs of what an incoherent brain looks like, what a coherent brain looks like. And in the coherent brain, you see a whole bunch of squiggly lines going, running horizontally across the monitor, but all of those squiggly lines are in sync. And then if you look at an incoherent brain, you see a whole bunch of squiggly lines running across the monitor, and they're not in sync, they're all over the place. And so people who are master manifestors, people who are able to create things, are people in sync. In one famous experiment I talk about in the book, these people were told to intend to alter the degree of twist of the DNA molecule. And this is something we can measure using certain scientific equipment. We can measure in a sample of DNA, DNA has a double helix shape, and we can measure how tightly twisted those molecules are on average. And so what these intenders were told to do was there was a vial of DNA, and they were told to alter the degree of twist in that vial of DNA, but not in the vial of DNA right next to it. So they were told to intend to do this. People with non-coherent minds, people with non-coherent mental and physical function, their intentions had no effect on the DNA at all. People who were in coherence, they could affect the DNA. In fact, in one study, they were given three beakers of DNA in front of them and said, we want you to change the degree of twist in the middle beaker and leave the two side ones untouched. People who had no coherence were not able to do that. People who were in coherence were able to do exactly that. Then they moved the three beakers 50 miles away. <laughs> so now it's not just a local effect. They thought, well, how? There's a plausible explanation that maybe the person's own local electromagnetic field is affecting the conformation of the DNA molecules. They moved the beakers 50 miles away. There was no, there was no possibility of electromagnetic interference or effects mm -hmm. of that, and still the effect persisted. Those incoherence were able to do that. So I show you in the book how to get incoherence and some of the astounding things, the astounding things, Xavier, that people in coherence can do. They can literally change the fundamental forces of physics. And that's the power we have with the coherent mind. Hmm. I mean, it's fascinating. I find this subject highly intriguing. And the idea of 
you know, manifesting something with your mind. But I mean, I'm not sure if you answered my question or not. Once I intend something, that's not the only thing that I have to do, right? I have to take the steps necessary to make that intention flourish, right? Well, uh, how much do you have to do? That's the question. And I think a lot of people are... I mean, we can't just... Sorry, sorry to cut you off. We can't just... I mean, we can't just sit back and intend things and expect them to appear. Can we do that? Well, um, <laughs> that's such, a, such an interesting realm of human inquiry because uh, sometimes what I've found is you can. In chapter one of the book, I tell the story of um, a trip I took. I had to finish a, a book many years ago on a tight deadline, and I, I wasn't getting it done in my office. So I decided to fly to Hawaii for a week, where I'd have no interruptions. I could just work on it uninterrupted in a condo overlooking the beach. So I rented a condo, flew out to Hawaii, and then I, uh, I I'd sit there in my my condo. I'd look out at the beach, and occasionally I would uh, jump in the car and go for a swim. And there was a lot of lovely beaches in that that part of of, of the south part of, of Hawaii. I'd explore different beaches. I'd all my snorkeling gear in the back of my car, and so one day I I drove the car to a beach. I grabbed the snorkeling gear out of the trunk. I uh, went to the beach, went snorkeling for the whole afternoon. And when I got back to my car, I reached into the pocket of my bathing suit and my car keys weren't there. And I'd also clipped the keys to my condo to the keys of the car. So now I was locked out of the car and out of the condo. So I went back in the water and this was a huge bay. This, is, this bay is about 300 yards uh, wide and long. So it was a big, big stretch of, of bay, about t- six to 12 feet deep, coral all over the bottom. And here I was swimming around this place trying to find a tiny set of car keys. Mm. And, you know, it was just, just a fool's errand. But I just stayed in my heart and I had the intention of having, of driving the car back, having my keys. And I, I, I searched for, for the car keys for like an hour, uh, swimming all over the bay, nothing. And eventually it was getting dark. And I realized that. It was, the odds of my finding these tiny keys 10 to 12 feet down in this huge bay were remote. So I began swimming back back to the, the beach to, to leave the water. And this father and three sons had just gotten into the water for just a quick dip before the sun went down. And I just had this intuitive nudge. And I, I swam over to them and said, and I see you guys have been swimming around here. Did you find anything on the bottom? And the youngest son held up my car and condo keys so again what did i do i did take action i did swim around and look for them Mm -hmm. even though the odds were a million to one against me finding them and then very mysteriously and synchronistically someone else found those car keys so yes you do sometimes have to take action i mean if i want a job at a certain place i need to create a resume and circulate my resume I, i if i want to uh find a companion for my life i need to put myself in places where i'll meet people i can't lock myself in a closet, never meet anybody and, and hope the universe has somebody come and knock on the door of the closet. Sure. So yeah, you need to take, take action. What you find over and over again, even writing the book was synchronous. Like I was writing the chapter on synchronicity. And eventually, initially I thought when I planned the book, well, you know, synchronicity, it's a mysterious phenomenon. There's no science behind that. That chapter of the book will be science-free. It'll just be a collection of nice anecdotes about how synchronicities happen. That is now the longest chapter of the book, and it's packed with science. And I found all kinds of synchronicities happening while I wrote the chapter on synchronicity that mysteriously brought the very scientists to me 
who are doing the primary research proving the link between individual coherence and universal, global, and uh, large-scale coherence. So there, I, I tell some of the, the stories in the book about this. So there are healing stories in the first half, but the second half of the book is these remarkable stories of the science of synchronicity and how you do have to take action. What do you find is the action you're taking then is synchronous. You're at the right place at the right time to get just the piece of information you need to make your dreams come true. So you aren't putting out effort, you aren't sweating, you aren't goal setting, you are just one with that universal flow. And if you train yourself to be one of the universal flow, then whatever action you do take is effective. Like me swimming up to those four people and saying, did you see anything on the bottom when you were diving down? Hmm. Yeah, but if you didn't, you know, if you didn't ask those people anything, if you just kind of sit, right. you were just sitting back and not doing anything about that, you would have never gotten the answer that you needed, right? Right. Now, I want to switch over to a book you wrote and epigenetics. You mentioned epigenetics earlier. Uh, you wrote a book called The Genie in Your Genes, and you were looking at the way epigenetics plays this role in our bodies that is conducive to healing. What are immediate early genes, and why did you focus on, on those in your book? Immediate early genes, there are different categories of genes, and it has to do with how long they take to expression. And so some genes are, get turned on or turned off, and then they're turned on or they're turned off, they're expressed or they're silenced for your whole life. Just one simple example is eye color. You have a certain color eyes, that gene got activated when you were very young, and that gene is stable throughout your whole life. That gene is not going to suddenly give you green eyes if you have brown eyes now. Uh, there actually are very rare cases where that does happen, but, uh, but for most people, those things are fixed. Your height, your eye color, there are all kinds of physical, phenotypical um, appearances of, of how your body is, how it works, which are fixed genes. But other genes turn on and turn off in, um, in cycles. Uh, the, the Nobel Prize for Medicine went last year to a researcher who helped figure out how our clock genes work. Because when it gets dark at night, you start to feel drowsy, eventually you fall asleep. And the genes that code for certain neurotransmitters and hormones are changing when you get drowsy. Same thing happens around 6 a.m. in the morning. At 6 a.m., the genes that code for cortisol turn on. Suddenly, you have a big flood of cortisol in your system. Your cortisol hits peak expression at about 8 a.m. And so these genes are on a 24, your clock genes are on a 24-hour cycle. But immediate early genes are genes that turn on very, very quickly in just one, two, or three seconds. And examples of those are stress genes. If you're walking past a dog park and there's an owner there who has a huge, ugly, mean-looking uh, pit bull, and the pit bull looks at you and snarls and breaks free from its owner's leash and rushes to you with fangs bared and drool streaming from its mouth, you have a really quick stress response. And your genes that code for stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, they turn on, they're turned on by those immediate early genes in one or two or three seconds. You have a huge spike of those stress hormones and that enables you to activate the fight or flight response and then you are able to take appropriate action, fight or flight or freeze. So uh, those immediate early genes are ones that govern things like stress or govern biological processes, which you need a very rapid response. Hmm. Do you think there's a, an intention gene? Like maybe some people are 
better at intention and manifestation than others? I don't think there's an intention gene as such. I think that there are people who, when they have intentions, uh, are triggering genetic cascades. And in that state of coherence, you are definitely shifting gene expression. For example, we know from research, I did a study at, well, I do a lot of live workshops every year. I can teach at Esalen, I teach at Kripalu, I teach at the Open Center in New York, teach at Omega Institute. And so we did a study of people at one of my week-long workshops. They were meditating in the morning. They were doing EFT, emotional freedom techniques, tapping, acupressure tapping mm-hmm. in the afternoon. And so they were also bringing in their intentions. And we showed over the course of a week that their, their baseline levels of cortisol dropped by an astonishing 37%. Mm. And then their levels of immune function rose by 113%. We were measuring their biological markers of immunity. Wow. So massive changes happening in their, their genome. And so when you intend, then anywhere in that state of, state of coherence, which, which tapping and uh, meditation bring you into, when you intend in that state, you're literally triggering the expression of different genes. In one study of EFT done by a colleague of mine, she looked at people's gene expression before and after a one-hour tapping session. And after the hour, 72 genes had changed their configuration. It upregulated 72 genes. It, 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 it upregulated up, up it. It turned on genes that fight breast cancer, prostate cancer, thyroid cancer, and uh, uh, colon cancer. It turned on genes that improve the insulation of neurons in the white matter of your brain. It turned on genes that code for memory and learning in the limbic system of the brain. It coded for genes that improve your metabolism. It it improved genes that code for cell repair. All of these genetic changes happening as people shifted into those states of coherence. So uh, not an intention gene per se, but is intention changing genes? Absolutely. Many of them and those genes have a direct impact on your health. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We are going to take a small break for a message from our sponsors. What's up, guys? Let's talk about mattresses. Let's talk about sleep. Sleep is an absolutely crucial part of uh, human need. I mean, it's like eating or drinking and breathing. Like other needs, sleep is the foundation for good health and well-being throughout your lifetime. Spoiler, this is where Helix Sleep has completely changed the game on mattresses and sleeping. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or firm bed with Helix, there is no more guessing or confusion. Get to helixsleep.com hxp, take their two-minute quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. That's right, $125 off at helixsleep.com slash hxp. That's helixsleep.com slash hxp for your $125 off your mattress order. One more time, helixsleep.com slash hxp. Stop losing sleep. Stop affecting your productivity and change the way you attack life. So get to helixsleep.com slash hxp and change your sleep game. 
There was a, a Huffington Post article that you wrote called Personal Epigenetics, a New Era in Health and Medicine. And you were looking at the effectiveness of emotional freedom techniques in changing the expression of genes. Can you just spell out what EFT is for anyone who doesn't know, please? Yeah, EFT, uh, for those who haven't heard it before, is a very simple method that combines acupressure. So it's not acupuncture. It's pressure with the fingertips by tapping on those acupuncture points. And you do it yourself. No one else does it for you. It's just a self-help method. And you combine that with affirmations and with elements of cognitive therapy. And what we do, for example, at the Veterans Stress Project is we bring in veterans who are traumatized, who've maybe been through both childhood traumas and combat. And we then have them remember those events. Like I worked with one, one young uh, Iraq veteran. He fought in the Battle of Fallujah. And in his, like the first week he was there, he was a medic. And he had to gather up the personal effects of a friend of his who'd been killed. And so then we had to take these, this blood-stained uniform and clean it up, send it back to his, this, this, the dead soldier's family back home. Again, terrible, terrible triggering sights, sounds, smells. And before EFT, this young man was traumatized. We've now done seven randomized controlled trials, and they show that EFT is extremely effective for PTSD. In one clinical trial I did, we looked at the PTSD levels in veterans, and they declined 64% over the course of six one hour treatment sessions. And EFT was effective for 85% of veterans. Colleagues of mine then did a replication study where they replicated that study and they found that the same decline in symptoms, so flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, all of those symptoms went away. And not only that, they found that it was effective for 90% of veterans. So powerful effects. And in long-term follow-ups, we find the effects then persist over time. And in the meta-analysis of those seven studies, the, the, the researchers found that um, they had, the EFT had a huge treatment effect. And a treatment effect means how effective is your treatment? So you take a pill, you go and get behavioral therapy, you get cognitive therapy, you do coaching, and you can measure how effective that is numerically. Like, is your anxiety going down by 12% or 85%? That's a huge difference. And some therapies will bring your anxiety down a lot, others a little bit. So effect size is something that we can measure statistically in a meta-analysis. And effect size is measured on a scale with two being some effect, with five being a moderate effect, and with eight being a big effect. So two is a very minimally effective treatment. Eight is a very effective treatment. On that scale of two, five, and eight, the researchers who did the meta-analysis found that the number for how effective EFT was for PTSD was 29. <laughs> On a scale of two, five, and eight, EFT was, was effective at the scale of 29. In other words, massively effective at bringing down symptoms. So that's the power of what EFT can do for people suffering from PTSD. Hmm, yeah, I mean, so, so EFT, not only uh, reducing illness and helping with PTSD, it also boosts performance, right? This is a study that, that you guys worked on. This is so fun. I just presented at another conference where um, 
one of the, the really weird things about psychology, Xavier, is that we've had these assessments now for 40, 50, 60 years sometimes, things like the back anxiety inventory, the PTSD inventory, the depression inventory, all of these things. And what they do is they measure, like if you, if you have a, a, a score of zero on the back depression inventory, that means you have no depression. If you have a score of 60, that means you're highly depressed, okay? So zero means no depression. And the whole of psychological research for decades has been on how, how much better you're getting if you're, you're treated. And that, that's a very fair question to ask, but <laughs> what, what, what people began to realize about 20 years ago was that, you know, just having no depression, maybe there's a little bit of life beyond just not being depressed, not being anxious, not having flashbacks and nightmares. How about thriving? So we have, for example, a coaching psychology course that is absolutely the most state-of-the-art course in coaching psychology that uh, my colleagues and I put together. And so that course ends in the last two modules with peak states and thriving. What would happen if you were to be able to walk onto the tennis court and play at a much higher level of play? I can tell you we've just had the World Cup, and a lot of those people, a lot of people, those teams were tapping. They were meditating. They were doing all kinds of performance hacks to improve their performance. So that's the next phase, is not just how do you not suffer, but how do you take your baseline of health and happiness and well-being and get a lot happier? So for example, at that same uh, week-long workshop at Esalen, where we were measuring things like salivary immunoglobulin A and cortisol and brain waves, we also measured happiness. And people over the course of the week, their baseline happiness improved by 31%. So again, as their cortisol is dropping, as their biochemistry is changing, their mood is improving, anxiety and depression goes down, and positive things happen. So there's a lot of EFT now in, in professional football, National Football League, professional baseball, Major League Baseball, American League Baseball. A lot of athletes are now discovering that it gives them the, the performance edge. And one, one of my favorite quotes is from one of our certified practitioners. And I, I, I urge people to check out getting a practitioner and working with them on either whether it's a physical issue or a performance issue, but work with someone who's certified. But th this, this woman had been a medalist in the 2000 Olympics. And she said, Dawson, in, in my sport, swimming, said in my sport of swimming, the difference between gold and bronze is one one thousandth of a second. <laughs> hmm, yeah. She said, you, that, you don't get one one thousandth of a second quicker by effort or by muscular strength. It's the mental game. And so much of improvement is the mental game. In my book, Mind to Matter, I talk about how high performers like people at Google, the Google executive suite, are using these methods. People in the Nike innovation team, people at Reebok using this, the, the Navy SEALs know that using these methods is, is important to not be stressed. They just built a huge facility called the Mind Gym in Norfolk, Virginia, where they're applying these methods to their high performers, to these Navy SEALs. They, they're putting millions of dollars of training dollars into training these people. Mental training is a key part of it. And they find that it raises productivity by over 250%. It doubles creativity. It improves their ability to think in difficult crises like hostage res rescue missions. So they learn to acquire these mental states before a hostage mission and after as well. 
so they don't get PTSD. It improves their performance during as well. So yeah, high performers of all stripes that are discovering that you can learn, train yourself into these elevated brain states. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, you have your hands in all this work. You're really pushing it forward. You created something called eco meditation. Can we get into that? What does that involve? Uh, it is for people who, like me, are terrible meditators, which includes most of us. So most people, when I'm doing live workshops, I, I say to people, I, say, I ask questions like, how many of you here in the workshop have taken a meditation class or read a meditation book? And like everyone raises their hands. They've all taken meditation classes. Then I say, and how many of you meditate daily? And like maybe one person in 20 raises his or her hand. Mm. And then the other 19 stare at the floor in embarrassment <laughs> because they, like me, like I, I took a meditation class, my first meditation class when I was 15 years old. I was, in a, I was living in a spiritual community and um, we were taught meditation. And the teacher said, meditation is very simple. All you have to do is still the mind. And I thought, still the mind? Still my mind? I, my mind is never still. So I helped develop meditation long. It, I, I was in dialogue with a lot of other really smart people when I was developing it, like, like Joe Dispenza, Roland McCready, the chief scientist at, at HeartMath, Dean Radin, the chief scientist in the Dometic Sciences. We were talking, though, about what's common to all of these effective practices. And I developed meditation and eco-meditation to be so simple that even people like me who can't still their minds, can't even sit still for five minutes, are able to do it. And so it's very simple. It's very mechanical. It's just doing seven things with your body, breathing a certain way, sitting a certain way, relaxing certain muscles. But in it, you mimic the physiological state of that mentally coherent master meditator. But it turns out when you just mimic their physiology, that you drop into that deep state yourself. So it's very powerful. And the research we're doing now on eco-meditation is showing that it's having all of these powerful effects on brain waves, neural functioning, brain functioning, hormones, immunity, and, and mood. So it really improves people's markers in all of those dimensions. So how does one sit down and do eco-meditation? I mean, what's the difference between regular meditation and eco-meditation? Meditation is really simple, and it's physiologically based. You do these th seven things, and they send signals to different parts of your brain and your body to relax in certain ways, but also become heart coherent. And so other meditation traditions might say, well, you know, come to this uh, ashram, uh, chant these words, here's what the spiritual teacher says you have to do, go through these cleansing practices. Eco-meditation just dispenses with all of that. What we've done is we've secularized meditation. We've taken meditation, we've removed all of the spiritual and religious and philosophical trappings from it, and it's down to the bare bones of what you do with your body to trigger that state of being in physiological coherence like a master meditator. And so we've stripped away all of the, um, all of the mythology around it. And again, that mythology can be useful. But you don't need it. Those Navy SEALs are not being trained to believe in a certain kind of spiritual religious practice. They're being trained to acquire these states independent of those practices. And so we've now found, because we have advanced tools, I mean, like when, when meditation, big meditation studies that, 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 that put meditation on the map in terms of um, uh, a neurobiological phenomenon were the ones done by Richard Davidson at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, where he examined Tibetan monks who'd been meditating for 
30 or more years. So these guys have been sitting there in meditation four hours a day, 30 plus years, and he hooked them up to EEGs and MRIs, and these monks were happy. All the happiness centers of their brains were lit up, and all the fear centers of their brains were shut down. Also, the personality parts of their brains were shut down. The parts that think I'm me, the parts that think my name is Dawson Church, that think I'm wearing a black and white shirt, that think I'm sitting in an office at a standing desk, and think I'm staring at a Macintosh monitor. Well, that part of the brain just went dark in those studies. Hmm. So those studies really showed that meditation was making us happy and shifting the brain. The thing is, though, if I were to tell you, Xavier, you too could be that happy and shift your brain function, and all you need to do is spend four hours a day for 30 years meditating, it's like, that's unrealistic. So I wanted something that would let people get to those states really, really quickly. And I took those MRI and, and EEG patterns and said, how about if we just put people in that same MRI and EEG signature state, and we skip all of the mythology, we skip all of the religion, and we say, do this, do that, do that, and the thing is, it, at, at, the, at, the, at the retreats I teach, we have people in that same state in about four minutes. It does not take 30 years. You can train your body to do it in just a very short period of time. You wrote a really fascinating editorial in Energy Psychology Journal called Set Points, Unconscious Triggers Governing Our Behavior. Can you talk about set points and what they are, please? Illustrated with two different, imagine two different people. So... You have somebody who is a pessimist, and whatever you tell her, she finds a way, a frame for that, to turn it into something that is bad, is miserable, is negative. And you know, we just all know people like that. Whatever you tell them, they find a way of, uh, you know, something good happens, they say, well, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, or... What goes up must come down. They have some kind of rebuttal of every good thing that happens in the world. So they're having these thoughts all the time. So they're having these thoughts. But these thoughts aren't abstractions in their brain. They're signals being passed along neurological pathways in their, in their brains. So if you pass a signal through a neural bundle over and over again for an hour, you double the number of synapses. In other words, that, that neural bundle is getting bigger and bigger and bigger the more you think that thought. So now the thinking that thought that thought is triggering mental activity, sending signals through those neural bundles. Those bundles are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And over time, they're now reshaping their brains. Their brains are changing in response. The neural plasticity is changing their brains in response to that. So that's the way a negative thinker is shifting their function. What then happens is the triggering stress hormones like cortisol and so now they maybe had a moderate set point for cortisol, and we measure it on a scale. It goes from like two to twelve. So maybe they were that maybe their set point, their their natural set point was six. But now the triggering fight or flight in their body with that brain activity over and over and over again, and gradually over time they raise that set point to seven, then to eight, then to nine, then to ten. Now suddenly, rather than having a moderate set point for cortisol of 6, on a scale of 2 to 12, they have a set point of 10. Somebody else now is a positive thinker. Same things happen to them. 
but they are relentlessly positive. So they're sending, they're having positive thoughts, they're sending signals through different parts of the brain to do with positivity. Those neural bundles are growing, those parts of the brain are getting bigger, and now those positive signals are taking them out of fight or flight, their cortisol is dropping. They were also at six originally, but now it drops down to five, and then four, and then three. And so now their set point is three. So both people began with the same brains, the same set points. The optimist has now dropped her set point down to three for cortisol. The pessimist has raised hers to 10 for cortisol, and you now have a different set point. And that set point has radical effects on your body. Cortisol literally produces calcification, hardening of the memory learning centers in the brain. Hmm. Calcium is the stuff your bones made out of. You're not supposed to have calcium in your brain, mm -hmm. but literally there are these calcium deposits on the memory learning centers of the brain, so that inhibits the ability of neurons to conduct uh, uh, sig signalings. So now over time, you have one person with high cortisol, one person with low cortisol, and this shows up in health span and lifespan. So optimists, I talk about in Mind to Matter, the differences in lifespan between optimists and pessimists. Optimists live on average eight years longer than pessimists. That cortisol is producing a degradation in people's um, health, in their brain function, in their cognitive abilities. They have more dementia, more Alzheimer's, more cognitive decline over time. The optimists have a much healthier and much longer life. So these set points then govern our behavior. So set points are hormonal, they're neurological, they're physiological, and they then become the way we respond to the world. So it's super important to start to regulate your set points, shift your thinking, and then have healthy set points for all of these neurotransmitters and these biological functions. Hmm, yeah, it's really fascinating. I, I want to jump back into mind to matter. I, I want to talk about intuition and premonition. This is, this is something that was, I've been waiting to ask you. How much do you think intuition plays into the idea of manifestation and being connected to the sort of non-local aspect of, of consciousness? Intuition is really interesting. And um, some people, for one thing, it has something to do with belief. There are people who believe in intuition, who believe in clairvoyance, who believe in telepathy, who believe in uh, psychic phenomena like that. And there are people who don't believe in it. Now, one of the really fun things I, I, I've discovered in reading studies in, the, in this field is, Xavier, this is, so, this is just hysterical. This is like some, some big cosmic joke being played on us by the universe. So people who have a strong belief in these phenomena, like intuition, mm -hmm. have experiences of intuition frequently. But those people who do not believe in intuition do not have intuitive experiences hmm. nearly as frequently and sometimes never. So our experience of these psychic phenomena is tied to whether we believe in them. And so if you believe in them, they tend to happen to you. If you don't believe in them, they tend not to happen to you. And so it's something that is happening, but only for those people who are believers in it. And intuition is really powerful. Uh, one of the most interesting forms of intuition is precognition. Precognition is, I have a big section on this in the book about the research into precognition. Precognition is the, the belief that I can know the future in some way, not that I can t you know, foretell the result of the next election or where the stock market's going, 
but then I get little intuitive hints, hunches about things that are happening in the future. And so people are precognitive. People have this ability of precognition. And the, the book has a, a review of uh, over, I think, how many studies there are in this review? Certainly over 200. I can't recall the exact number. But the, the preponderance of evidence is that precognition exists. And that intuitively, we certainly can, uh, in, in many cases, know something about events that aren't supposed to happen. So, uh, yeah, intuition and these other phenomena are, are real, but the more you believe in them, the more real they are for you. Hmm, yeah, it's such an interesting paradox. I mean, it, the more that you believe in it. So, I mean, is there a sort of halfway point where you're, you want to test it first? <laughs> well, I, I, I love science because science gives you those halfway points. And uh, the, I also do a lot of debunking in the book of, of myths. People believe this, you know, things can happen. People believe in like you know, miraculous things that might happen. And uh, I never want to discount the possibility of a, of a miracle, but um, science shows you the extent to which it is possible. And I think that that's why it's, it's useful reading a book like Mind to Matter and knowing what is possible. So you're trying to do the things that you can do, like affect the number of circulating immune cells in your, your body, how many stem cells you have in your, in your system, uh, affect things like your body's ability to, to suppress cancer tumors. All of these things are things you can do. But don't try and do things that are difficult or impossible. And science gives you the parameters of what those are. Hmm. I mean, I mean, the idea here is that we are affecting matter with our minds. I mean, this is the title of your book, right? So what are some of the things that have happened in your life that, that you've noted where it would sort of promote this idea? Yeah, I, I do uh, talk mostly about other people and about other people's experiences, but I have had quite a few really startling experiences in my life of synchronicity intuition and being in the flow when you're in the flow those experiences happen to you most more often one simple one was that um when i was scuba diving last a few weeks back i uh, scuba dive three four times a year and i was in in the florida keys and uh there's a very unusual kind of fish called a scrolled filefish. And it's unusual because it swims at a 45 degree angle. It's just a, it's a very, very ordinary looking fish, except that it looks like, it always looks like a crossbar. It's always swimming at this 45 degree angle. So it's a very distinctive fish. And I, I'd never seen one before in, in 75 scuba trips. And um, I was swimming down at a depth of about 30 feet. And I just had this, this thought, wow, it would be fabulous to see a scrolled filefish. I had a diving buddy. I was swimming along with him. And then my intuition gave me this little nudge and said, look behind you and up. And I did. I turned all the way around and looked up toward the surface. And there, silhouetted against the sun, was a scrolled filefish. Hmm. And um, it was just interesting. I'd had that thought that morning. And then on that 75th diving trip, I, I saw one. Uh, I, I then admired it for a while, but, but again, it, it was right in front of me. I had to then hear the intuitive nudge to turn all the way around. And normally in scuba diving, you're looking horizontally or you're looking down. I had to look up at, against the sunset and sunrise. And there, sun, there it was right against the sun. So that was just one little nudge. I, 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 I just enjoyed the, the fish for a while. I turned around and kept on swimming. And then I had this, this memory 
I thought, you know, I've never been to, never been scuba diving in Mexico in this place called the Cave of the Sleeping Sharks. And I had this thought, I was swimming along behind my scuba buddy, and I thought, oh, you know, one of these days I might go see the Cave of the Sleeping Sharks, which is a, a famous cave where these, these sharks lie on the bottom. And I was swimming along, and this guy uh, was in front of me, and he was looking around, I was looking around, and I noticed a small cave around the next bend. And looked inside the cave, and there was nothing. And I thought, you know, I'm going to swim a little uh, further down, a little deeper. I can see further in the cave. So I swam down a little further, like three feet further, and there was a shark on the bottom of this cave, just lying there, hanging out. So I, I which again, my buddy hadn't seen. So I swam with my buddy, grabbed his fin, pulled it back. We looked, both went back, looked at the shark. Now, again, these are just little nudges you get, little hints you get, and. Um, you get in the habit after a while of listening to them. And I, when I was young, younger, I'd hear them, but I would override them. My logical mind would say, that's silly. Don't do that. But now in my, uh, <laughs> you know, I've had a few years of doing research and looking at them. I listen to those intuitive nudges. And I find that they're happening to me pretty much every day. I wake up, meditate, then say, universe, what amazing synchronous surprises will I encounter today? I can't wait to see what you have in mind for me as I coordinate, as I entrain myself with that non-local mind. When you're, when you're entrained with the non-local mind, you also are entrained with everyone else who's also entrained with the non-local mind. So you find things happen synchronously for you all the time. Yeah, wow, so much going on here. And, you know, it's amazing through this whole interview, you've mentioned things that, that literally on my on my list of questions, word for word almost. And it's 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 really interesting. Uh, I mean, you mentioned flow state. That's literally the next thing that I was going to bring up or mention. I wanted to ask you about how mind to matter, you know, talks about flow state and what flow state is. We talk about flow state here a lot, but I'd like to hear your interpretation of that. Flow states are states where you feel a frictionless sense of um, flow with everything around you. And the, the sense of friction, of bumping up against people and events and things, goes away. And you're in this state of feeling as though things are effortless and easy. And athletes talk about this. They say that when they're in the, in, the, in the flow, they know everything's okay. Time seems to slow down. They have all the focus and concentration they can need. They're in this altered state. The cool thing about flow states is when they were first described by Mikhail, oh, and Xavier, I, I, I cannot pronounce his last name, Sent Mihai, uh, his book called Flow came out in the 70s mm -hmm. and uh, catalyzed our awareness of flow in experientially. He described what people who are experiencing flow feel like. We know what they feel like, what it looks like to them. What we now have, though, with advanced imaging tools is we know what the brain looks like in flow. And there are different names for it. And uh, the, the name that I use most in my book, Mind to Matter, is this EEG signature state called the awakened mind. We hook people up to an uh, EEG, and when they're in flow, we can see what their brainwave patterns are. And in the book, I show you what those ex exact brainwave patterns are, what they look like. We know when they're in awakened mind. Another word for flow in the Navy SEALs don't call it flow. They call it ecstasis. Hmm, E-C-S-T-A-S-I-S. Yeah. E -S -S -S. 
and uh, off the uh, Latin word ecstasy. They use this phrase called ecstasis, and they know, you can feel when you're in flow, when you're in awakened mind, when you're, you're in ecstasis. And so uh, we know what that looks like in terms of a brainwave pattern. We know what it looks like in terms of a human experience. And the cool thing about it being an experience is that when you've been trained to acquire that brain state through eco-meditation, through tapping, you know what it feels like in your body, and you don't need an EEG to be able to acquire it. I was on a panel, a science panel recently with uh, a guy who's a C an, an executive officer with uh, the company that makes the Muse headband. And he says, after you've trained yourself to using a Muse headband for a while to acquire these states, you don't need the Muse headband. You know what it feels like internally. So you know the set point of cortisol, of immunoglobulin, of DHEA, of serotonin, of dopamine, of GABA, of acetylcholine. Uh, you know exactly what all of these ratios are. You no longer need these external ways of demonstrating them. That's the beauty of these internal states. So you change your set point, you know what it feels like then to be in flow, and then you, you, you use the tools that get you in that state and keep you in that state for as long as you want. Mm, yeah, I mean, do you think this is the new science? Do you think this is sort of the next thing that we're going to be finding out more on? Do you think that's, hap that's happening right now as we speak? The new soft science is going to be meditation and EFT and derivatives of meditation and EFT. And the new hard science is going to be wearable devices that monitor this and help you get into the zone, and maybe ones that can stimulate you into being into the zone. That's quite hard. Um, because we know these, these brainwave ratios, I can build a device that will artificially induce those in you, but that device will work well for some people and will traumatize other people because uh, we're, the way our brains come to the experience is very different. But, but wearables, miniaturized devices, wireless devices, right now to use the Muse headband, I have to put the headband on my head. To use an EEG, I have to use electrodes and attach them to my scalp. Uh, what's coming soon to a brain science center near you is a wearable device and a wireless device that'll do all of this for you without you having to go through all the trouble of um, hooking up all of those electrodes and having a power source. So the software is going to be tools like energy medicine, energy psychology, tapping, meditation. That'll be the software that gets you there. The hardware that measures it will increasingly be miniaturized, be wearable, uh, and be unobtrusive in terms of charging and connections. So that, that's where I think we're going in terms of hardware and software. Yeah, Dawson, such a fun interview. Where can people find Mind to Matter? Go to the website for the book, which is mindtomatter.club.club. So it's not .com or .net or .org. It's mindtomatter.club.club. So mindtomatter.club, you can, you can order the book. You'd also get free meditations. I also give you access to several ways of really using the book effectively, like ways of meditating along with each theme chapter. The book also has um, an extended play bonus section after each chapter, which gives you access to videos, to, re to research sites, to all kinds of information lists, lists of practitioners, people who can apply these therapies with you, performance coaches, and so on. But all of that's accessed through the dot club website, mindmatter.club. It's all there.
Okay. And do you have a, a personal website that people can go to to see your, your other work? That'll dump you on, it'll give you access to all of those things through the, the Mind Matter website. Okay, great. Uh, Dawson, thank you so much. Guys, we are going to get out of here. My guest is Dawson Church. The book is called Mind to Matter, The Astonishing Science of How Your Brain Creates Material Reality. Uh, you can check this book out, put it into Google, and find it there. Thank you guys so much for listening. You will hear from us next week.